0: Welcome to Addiction and the Family, episode 28, Interview with the Interventionist.
1: How has addiction affected your family?
0: It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, It has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I
1: understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has... Made our family quite
2: challenging. It affected my family tremendously. It's affected my relationship with my sister
1: where I wouldn't, I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual, it's a disease that affects the
0: whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume
1: ancestors.
0: It's uh, generational. I think of him every day.
1: Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers. And I'm the author of Realistic Hope, the family survival guide for facing alcoholism and other addictions.
0: And I'm Kira Arriaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill, Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long.
1: I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults.
0: Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we hear from Dustin Williams, who owns and runs the ABC's recovery service, which provides intervention, recovery coaching, sober companion, case management, and sober transport services. Dustin talks about his own story of recovery, as well as things families should know about interventions, having a loved one in treatment, and what happens afterward. All this and more after a word from one of our sponsors.
1: Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States.
0: I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Let's hear that interview with Dustin.
1: Welcome to Addiction in the Family. Really glad to have you on the show. And if you would, why don't you take just a moment and introduce yourself to our audience, let them know who you are and a little bit about what you do, and we'll go from there.
2: So my name is Dustin Williams. I'm the CEO and owner of DABC's Recovery Service. We do interventions, case management, sober companion, so transport, treatment referrals, a little bit of everything. Work with the families, you know, coaching them during the interventions, and then after while the clients in treatment, so I also offer a case management for the family side of it too.
1: Fantastic. So tell us a little bit about what has you on a show called Addiction and the Family.
2: So with the interventions that I do you know a lot of the times the families don't grasp the the fact that they're in the midst of this disease with them and they have their own struggles and I really I, I love the part of helping the families so anytime I get a chance to be a part of the family side of it I jump in whether it be through just coaching them or just you know, whatever I can do to help.
1: On a personal side, do you connect with this? Because a lot of people do this kind of work because they have some personal connection to recovery, the family, and that sort of thing.
2: Uh, Yes, so I struggled with addiction for, I don't know, 20 plus years, and I was in and out of treatment, and my family never participated, was never a part of. It was always, I would get better, go back to the family, to the chaotic environment. And I always, you know, ended up relapsing. It wasn't until my family pretty much cut me off completely. And, you know, I I, I was already divorced. My brother was tired of my stuff. So he moved to Arizona to get away from me. And, you know, I was left with, what am I gonna do now, type of thing. And, you know, a couple stints in jail prior to that, and then I got out in 2016. Thought, well, eh, I'm just going to another run because I'm going to go back to jail, anyways. And ended up in the treatment center once again, thinking, "What? Well, how'd I get here? I got out, I, I grasped all the, the 12 steps and went about it, but I knew that. There was a lot missing in between a loved one reaching out and the family. So I picked the brain of a lot of Al-Anon people. And then just also, you know, some of my colleagues, people I've worked for in the past and a little bit from Casey. (laughs) while I worked with them, you know, and... uh, I grew, as the business grew and as the more interventions I did, I seen that the family suffered in silence a lot of the time. Once the addict or alcohol got better, they were still suffering. So it made it a point to start working more with the families before the intervention goes down to educate them and get them kind of up to speed in a very short period of time so anytime I can find something that would help me improve that piece, you know, I've been listening to the podcast and yeah, it's helped out a lot. I actually refer to family to hear the podcast. So.
1: Oh, nice. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Now, something you said also kind of jumped out to me, though. You said like you go to treatment, you get to where you're doing better. You said you go back to some of the, the chaotic environment in the family. You mind my asking what you're referring to there? (laughs)
2: <laughs> Funny story. My brother's a federal agent, so he has that, you know, I don't have a problem, you have the problem. And I think that as someone who struggles with addiction, if family was more, like my kids were more kind of involved in it once they got older, um, my family in general, I think it would have helped. And maybe I wouldn't have went to eight treatment centers and a student, you know, TDC. Who knows? Maybe I would have. But I think if my family would have had those healthy boundaries sooner, might have sparked something in them.
1: So when you were talking about the chaos, it was more around they didn't know how to set healthy boundaries?
2: Oh Yeah, they had zero boundaries. There's an idea is just stop put it down blah, blah, blah. I can't put it down why can't you when I slip up and make mistakes my brother was a that hero right he'd swoop in and save the day and then he'd be like oh look at me I'm so great I saved Dustin once again you know and then I got healthy and he was like oh I don't know what I'm supposed to do so he kind of like took the drug away from him that's what I try to educate around is the family getting their help while the victim wants getting help.
1: For sure. And that kind of touches on a theory that gets thrown around around family roles, like one person is kind of the hero, another person is called the scapegoat, the person where it's kind of lightning rod. And many people in recovery, myself included, can identify with that lightning rod scapegoat role. and. I think something you said there is really telling. It happens in a lot of families. One person gets healthy and the other people aren't quite sure where they are anymore. Like, who am I if you're not the sick one? You mentioned that dynamic with your brother. How's that going now within your family?
2: Man, me and him have an amazing relationship. He. uh <laughs> He invited me to go do a ride with him and his group of cops, the law enforcement people. He's a part of the, I call it the motorcycle gang. It's not, but it's a club. So I'm like, what are you doing here? It was pretty cool. I mean, I think he sees me as an equal instead of less than, like he always did.
1: That's really good to hear, first of all, just for your personal family relationship, but also for our listeners to understand that The family may struggle initially if one person changes, but everyone will get used to it, right? Everyone will kind of realign the family system and it gives people an opportunity to step out of the family role. Maybe I don't have to be the hero all the time or I don't have to be the scapegoat all the time or I don't have to be the quiet one all the time, stuff like that. So it's really good to hear that in action in your own family.
2: Yeah, and even my kids, I mean, my little daughter just graduated college. She moved from, corpus christi up to san antonio i not want to say to be around me but she's 10 minutes from my house her and her fiance so it's pretty cool to have them in town where i actually have my blood family
1: that's really nice man congratulations and congratulations of her graduating from college and for you being able to really solidify those family relationships and if i can ask how long would you say that process took for you to go from like hey look i'm sober again to Hey, I feel like we're equals. I'm getting invited to these really cool events. I'm the guy doing interventions
2: now. <laughs> well, my brother just invited me, so that's almost five years. <laughs> I mean, I guess I was about six, eight months sober, and I, I went out to Arizona to have Thanksgiving with him. My daughter, it took a little bit, probably about two years, maybe even three. <laughs> I mean, they just hadn't been through enough, you know, and they were just protecting themselves. But her fiancé, struggles with his dad. And he's like, look, your dad's making an effort. You're going to make an effort. So we had dinner and now we hang out. We talk probably more now than we did when she was a kid. Whenever I was married to her mom.
1: That's really beautiful to hear. I'm reminded of a saying that I've heard in recovery. You can't walk 20 miles into the forest and expect to walk one mile back out.
2: Very true. But a
1: lot of us find when we're getting going on a recovery, and maybe it does take a couple of years, maybe it does take three years. And I've talked to a few people recently where three years was some invisible line to got crossed, where like, hey, my wife seems like she's forgiven me, or the kids are coming back around or something like that. And yet I know a lot of people in early recovery and a lot of family members also can look around and say like, hey, can we get those results right away? Like, I'm sober now. Why isn't everyone like building a statue and throwing a parade, man?
2: You're right. I used to do that all the time when I would get sober and, you know, I was like, oh, look at me. I'm sober today. Well, yeah, but you wasn't for the last five years. I always wanted that instant thing. And this time I just let them organically happen versus trying to force my way back in.
1: Yeah. And so if somebody's listening to this, that's maybe newly sober or a family member is listening to it and they have a loved one who's newly sober, what would you want to say to them about that?
2: The thing that my sponsor tells me all the time, are you willing to trust God? And that's what I did. I prayed for it, for these relationships. I didn't obsess over them, I didn't be selfish. I made a first attempt and they weren't having it. And then eventually, like with my daughter, she only reached out to me because she needed help with her financial aid. And she knew I got financial aid. Her mom had to her taxes or whatever. And we slowly started talking. I would say, I love you, goodbye, click, nothing. She wouldn't say nothing. And next time, you know, I'd say, I love you, kiddo, goodbye, click, nothing. Eventually she said goodbye. And then eventually she just said, I love you. And then she said it first, right? And so it it built its way up to that. And then after that, we had sushi and everything was good. I mean, you can repair a lot over sushi.
1: Sushi is pretty cool that way. (laughs) It's funny, I had a very similar journey with my mom when we reunited. My adoptive mom had cut me out for a number of years. You know, there was issues on both sides. But when we did start to rekindle the relationship, I had a similar thing. I would say, like, all right, mom, I love you. And be like, "Uh uh-huh. It took a while for her to come around and say, like, you too, hon. And I was super excited that she said that, like, she said, you too. Oh, cool. And eventually she got to the point where she could say, I love you. And then one day she was able to say it first. And so I'm going to say that whole process was like months, if not a year or more. We didn't involve any sushi, although we have been out to Japanese since. So maybe there's some of the magic in that. Is anybody listening out there? We'll put a little plug out there for the Japanese food. It might be the secret sauce. (laughs) So, if you would talk a little bit more now, how did you get from that spot of just starting to get sober? You're just getting your life together. You're starting to at least try to rebuild relationships. How do you get from there to being a guy who's now helping other family members out to understand their journey where they need recovery?
2: And I started this company as a side business. And thought, okay, I'll just do an intervention here and there, and maybe a couple transports, and you know, it'll supplement my income. I got certified and dove into it. But actually, one of the first clients I had working with the family behind the scenes as she struggled time and time and time again to get sober. And through the process, just learning, like I went to work for a treatment center as business development because i was fearful of doing the business full-time and then i left there because of covid started doing full-time silver transports and the last two years have been pretty solid i've traveled all over the united states done interventions in albuquerque new mexico florida you name it i've been blessed with it and then the first client i had she is finally celebrating one year
1: right on
2: yeah, so it's it's super cool. Um, I've had my struggles over the last five years. I've had a lot of medical issues, but the one thing that stayed solid is, am I willing to trust God? So the back of my shirt, I won't tell you what it said because it's not PG-13, but it says, we just want a blanket help. And that's the truth. I've been blessed where I can do some promo no stuff, and that's really rewarding. And I've been blessed just to be able to help a few people here and there. I don't know how I get there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned a couple of times the idea, you know, trust God. You know, 12-step recovery always has a spiritual aspect to it, which sometimes is misunderstood for religion. Not that there's anything wrong with that part. But could you talk a little bit about the role that spirituality plays in your recovery and in your life today?
2: It's absolutely the top priority. I'm not a religious dude. (laughs) I'm a little rough around the edges, so to speak, I guess. But uh, there's absolutely no way I would be where I'm at today without God or higher power or whatever it is. So spirituality is the number one. And the moment I put anything, even if it's recovery before God, I'm going to lose it. So I may not be the biggest meeting maker or sponsor a lot of dudes now, but I keep the spiritual aspect in the forefront, And I start my day with God, what do you want me to do and who you want me to help? And it never fails. He always provides something. So yeah, I would say it's the top priority. That's
1: very cool. Now when I'm talking about like your work with families, stuff like that, would you mind giving a little detail on what are the kind of things that you see that families struggle most with or where you're able to provide them the most help whether it's before the intervention is able to happen while it's happening afterwards talk about that a little bit
2: so all my work happens before the intervention i mean i was a car salesman for 16 years i can convince anybody of anything. i was very successful in the car business unfortunately my disease took that from me I gave it to it, but the work with the family starts just trying to find out where everybody is, you know, what their understanding of the situation is. Because I just did one with 12 family members. And man, I'll tell you, that one was wild. You know, and a dad just sat in there, arms crossed and no personality. And you know, just like I would an addict, I'll call him on it. I am very honest with them, and my goal when i do an intervention is to get that person help and what that help looks like i don't know all the time you know maybe it is treatment but maybe it's mental health maybe it's both maybe you don't know you can go to treatment maybe he just needs to go to sober living but i also teaching them boundaries that's the hardest you know healthy boundaries you know when you tell mom so are you willing to tell your son that he can no longer live here And they think that that's turning their back on them when actually it's no longer enabling the addiction. It's supporting their recovery.
1: And you mentioned one kind of boundary there. So what kind of boundaries or things like that do you see that families struggle most with?
2: So I use what they call the HELPS model. And HELPS is health, environmental, legal, personal, and spiritual. And that's what I guide for the healthy boundaries. I think what they struggle the most with is when they have to come to those hard boundaries, right? Because nobody wants to say, you can no longer live with this. None of the families want to say, we're no longer going to give you money to eat. And the enabling part, they don't see it as enabling. They see it as helping. And actually it's destructive enabling. You know, there's two different types of enabling. There's enabling, and then there's destructive. Getting them to see that, you know, just uh, kind of changing their mindset.
1: Absolutely, and I, I appreciate you kind of making that distinction. You know, you can help someone in a healthy way, or you can enable the addiction. And being able to separate those things out can be really difficult for people. In fact, I'll put a plug in. I guess it was our January episode was on enabling versus helping, and that idea of being able to separate those ideas out. and that can be a uh, revolutionary for a family to start to recognize that sort of thing i appreciate what you're saying also that you do a lot of the work with the family before the intervention itself so you mentioned one issue for instance just a prototype here dad might be closed off mom might have trouble letting go what are some of the other sort of family roles or dynamics that you see typically come up in an intervention
2: i uh, mean you can have like it's a lost child, really, they just fall back in the corner. They don't want to be out there in the spotlight. They hope you don't call on them to read a letter. Then you get the hero who's trying to be overbearing and run everything, you know, the domineering son. And, you know, he's the little brother or the older brother, even. You've got to listen and getting them to realize that when we present the intervention to the identified patient, they have a choice. They do not have to go because they're free to make their own choice. i getting him to see that. They're like, oh, we can't give him that option that he has to go. Um, no. <laughs> and then the lost child will sit back and not say anything. And really, she's probably got the most to say.
1: And I appreciate that recognition and being able to educate the family that you can't make somebody go into recovery. But then the flip's also true. You can't screw up the recovery, really. If somebody's determined to get sober, they're going to get sober with or without you. And I think it's vital sometimes for family members to recognize both sides of that, that they can't actually screw up someone else's sobriety. Because I see a lot of family members are like, oh, my loved one's coming out of treatment. I don't want to make the wrong moves. Like, you know, short of pouring alcohol in the mouth while they're asleep, there's really not like a wrong (laughs) move you can make, right? Like, don't do anything incredibly drastic there. But the reality is, is, is people are going to get sober if they really decide they want to get sober.
2: Yeah. when well, they teach in Al-Anon, they say the three C's: you can't cause it, you can't cure it, you can't control it. That's something I push with the families, let them understand.
1: Do you find that's hard to get across sometimes?
2: Yes. A lot of the times, the moms like, oh my God, I didn't give him enough attention and or... a or yelling when he's potty training. Look, you didn't cause this. And one of the hard things is like they say, "Oh, he suffered some trauma." Well, that didn't cause his addiction either. That may, have, you know, excelled it, but it didn't cause it. He suffers from a disease, and that's hard to get across to the loved ones.
1: And what do you find helps people most to understand some of these ideas?
2: personal experience you know i i share a lot of my personal experience in recovery and the fact you know my brother didn't cause me in my addiction the fact that my daddy didn't let me the way i think he should or my dad beat me with the belt too many times none of that i mean my family was actually pretty cool yeah and then he goes out to be a federal agent you know and there's nothing in my family history that immediate family that says you're going to be an addict and you're going to suffer from a disease. And it was hard for me to grasp that, you know, for 20-something years. Getting the family to see that is hard. That's probably where the most education comes from. Because you got the mom, I'll do anything. And then you're like, okay, cool. Tell him he can't live with you. Well, but, but that. You know, and then the dad's like, I, I don't believe in none of this. And getting to see that the walls fall down, that we talk about getting to see the light come on in someone's eyes. man, to take a family that is absolutely hopeless and see them have hope is probably the best, I don't wanna say best high, but the best high I've ever got because I get, I get jazzed about it, you know? And then they're like, oh, he's never gonna go. And, then he's convinced that he needs help, and this is an option for help. That's super cool. And then the family say, oh, you're the greatest. No, I'm not. (laughs) It's just great to see all that come back together and be a part of it.
1: So let's say the intervention kind of goes to everyone's best wishes, client goes into treatment. What do you say or recommend for the family then, now their loved ones are treatment?
2: So I recommend they find a very quick Al-Anon meeting right around them. I also offer myself, so part of my intervention services, it isn't just an intervention. I work with the families after the intervention, during treatment. I try to stay close to my client while they're in treatment, get updates on a weekly basis, and be part of the discharge planning. And just tell the family that I'm the one you come to. Don't go to him or her with it. Come to me if you have a concern, because we don't want to stress them out. And I tell the client even, I say, look, how about you talk to me (laughs) if you need something? I mean, but talk to your family too. I just want them to kind of start rekindling that relationship and not put the stressors on it that come with someone who's in treatment. They're like, oh, they're not feeding me right, which I know to be false most of the time because I feed them probably too much.
0: (laughs) Let's take a break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll hear the rest of Casey's interview with Dustin Williams. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. If you like what we're doing in Addiction and the Family, Here are some ways you can help support it and carry the message further. If you haven't read Casey's book Realistic Hope The Family Survival Guide for Effacing Alcoholism and Other Addictions it is now available in paperback on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online retailers. It's also available on Kindle, Nook, and Apple Books. If you have read it, tell a friend, family member, or anyone you meet who might benefit from its message. If you feel so inspired, please write a review on Amazon or any of the other retailers. Last but not least, we are on Patreon under Addiction and the Family. Thanks for all your support. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. Here's the rest of Dustin's interview.
2: And what
1: are some of the issues and pitfalls that you see for family members while their loved one is still in treatment
2: so i tell them the intervention isn't a success or failure unless you don't hold true to what bottom lines we came with and we call them bottom line but they're really healthy boundaries for the family if they start to get sick again the chances of the identified patient relapsing are greater if they don't get treatment themselves, whether it's go to counseling, I recommend counseling to every one of them. I believe in counseling. I recommend some type of support group because they're going to need that support because it's just like they don't know what the addict's going through. Because if you never ate a banana, how can you tell me what it tastes like or how to eat one? And if the roles were reversed, the addict don't know what the family's gone through because they're not the ones suffering from that. A lot of them may say, oh, I know, but my family do a lot. Do you really know, unless you go sit in an Al-Anon meeting and shut up and just listen to what they have to say, go to three of them. You're going to be very surprised. I was. Uh,
1: with you 100% advocating for the family getting their support. Like you said, counseling, recovery fellowships like Al-Anon, Smart Recovery Family and Friends, wherever you find it where you really connect and hear a good recovery message for family members. So now a family member has got their loved one coming out of treatment. And this is a time of great nervousness and trepidation in my experience. The person with the addiction always leaves treatment with like a written discharge plan. Here's where you're supposed to go next. Here's what you're supposed to do. And unfortunately, a lot of times the family member isn't sure what they're supposed to do when the loved one gets out of treatment. What do you tell them about that?
2: So if they played a part in the discharge planning, whether it's just updates from the identified patient or what, I prepare them like a family I'm working with right now. I'm like, okay, the game plan is this. Because at that point, they have trust in me. So I'm giving them their discharge planning. Also, this is what you're going to do. This is where you're going to go. Stop worrying about what he's going to go do and where he's going. Then you know I tell them to support milestones: 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Be there and support. You know and that means a lot to an addict, and vice versa. Whenever you get your chips at Al-Anon, or you know, make an accomplishment in SMART, whatever it is. Those are big milestones. So I stay pretty active with them even after they discharge. I give a case management for two months, uh, then offer a pretty intense case management for 12 months. I just help the addict get to where they need to be going um, as far as directions and suggestions, but also do that with a family. You know, there's some that are involved in the intervention but don't partake in the rest. and. You know, they got to suffer long enough to feel that. You know, it's just like we did as addicts, we had to get beat down. So, unfortunately, family does too.
1: Yeah, I don't think that gets acknowledged enough. That you know, everyone says, well, the addict has to bottom so that they can change." But I constantly see family members also need to hit some kind of a bottom before they're ready to change. And luckily, bottom doesn't mean you got to go to jail, live on the street, something like that. You just have to get to a place where the emotional discomfort is so great that you tell yourself, I don't want to keep going like this anymore, whether it's giving somebody money or putting all your hopes on them doing well. It's one thing I have to do sometimes is kind of get a crowbar out to separate out the family doing well from the person with the addiction doing well. Because it turns into like, hey, how's your family doing? Oh, man, we're doing great because Junior's sober. Yeah. Well, then that's a setup. What are you going to do when Junior's not sober? Or if Junior's struggling? Or this happens for a lot of family members. You're not sure. Like, we think maybe he's drinking again, but we're not sure. We can't prove anything. Well, all your serenity and happiness your family just drained out because you were staking your happiness on whether or not they stay sober and how they're doing. And so getting the family to separate that out and say, how am I doing that isn't based on my loved one? Uh, Sometimes that is a bit of a journey if they haven't hit some kind of a bottom. Yeah. So you talked about like case management type stuff with families and with people, you know, who are directly in addiction recovery. Talk a little bit about what you see people needing during that phase, now that they're out of treatment and they're going to that vital first year of sobriety.
2: You know, the reason I geared up on my case management was I was reading it, trying to figure out what's the point of biggest relapse. And the first two months out of treatment, you have the highest relapse rate because they go to treatment for 30, 60, 90 days. And they're like, OK, cool. Now go out and live life. And they're like, "Ooh, OK, how do you do that? And so the life skill part of it, right? How do I go and do healthy shopping? How do I go and eat healthy and cook for myself? How do I wash laundry? How am I supposed to do certain things? Because if they're part of a type of recovery path, and you know, whatever it may be, 12 steps or not, they teach them how to live life. They don't teach how to support life. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but They get out and they're like, okay, go to meetings. They're like, okay, cool. When, where? They find that they don't know where the right grocery store is. They don't know how to budget. They don't know how to stay on a schedule. I get there in treatment and they're told where to be and when to be there. And they get out. Nobody's telling them hey, you need to be here at this time, at this time, you know, wake up at a decent time, you know, all that healthy living part and still look at the three parts of the disease, right? The mental, the spiritual, the physical, and how to treat all those. Man, I'll tell you, there's many times where if I didn't have good, solid men around me that talked to me whenever I was acting a fool, because I don't realize the life skills behind actually life. So I think that's where I help out the most. And then it goes on the flip side of the family too. How do they live this wild and crazy life they're going to experience and the freedoms that they're going to experience. Most families are scared to go on vacation because what if I don't take them? Uh, He's going to come tear up the house. You shouldn't have to live like that.
1: Absolutely. No, I just ran into a situation the other day with a family where I had challenged them to say like, what does your recovery look like that isn't hitched to your loved one's recovery? And they came back the next week and they're like, well, what we kind of came up with is we had this trip where we were gonna leave the country and we were gonna cancel it because the trip was gonna happen right when their loved one got out of treatment. And they realized, well, hold on a second, I should go on that trip regardless. And mom said, well, I'm kind of afraid because if I go on this trip, i'm going to be worrying the whole time and their loved one who was in treatment said this really beautiful and brilliant thing they said look either i'm going to decide to stay sober and i'm going to stay sober or i'm not whether or not you go on a trip where you are is not going to make any difference so go on the trip and don't spend a bunch of time worrying because the worry comes back down to that illusion of control just like you're saying I didn't cause it can't care it can't control it well, if I start to think, oh, if I go on a trip, then they're gonna relapse, I'm putting myself back in control of their recovery. Like, oh, I made the wrong move, so they relapse. And I'm like, again, that doesn't exist. You don't have that kind of power. Right. Moving out of that illusion of control. absolutely. So over the course of that year, I'm sure, again, you get to see people really blossom, grow, start to live life. Where do you look at the family member and say, okay, it's time for you to just kind of live your lives, let it go. Let that person's recovery be their own.
2: You know what? It might occur like on one, I stopped at 11 months because it was time for them to go. And, you know, I tell them, even the families, I was like, I do not want you dependent upon me. I cannot keep your loved ones sober. All I can do is educate and pull them in the right direction. And the same goes for you, you know, and I still have families that call me. I'm just to update me, which is cool. I like this one here that I'm celebrating with her tomorrow. I mean, I talked to the mom. She used to cook dinner for me on Sundays. She would send me home with lasagna or uh, all kinds of stuff. You know, it was super cool to become a part of that family and then see that family get better. You know, they still have them on my thoughts, and I periodically check up on everybody I work with. Sometimes it's a good to report, sometimes it's not. Sometimes they had a little slip, sometimes they're still sober three years later.
1: That is pretty cool. So, a couple last questions. One, if you want to kind of summarize your message for family members who are listening to this, what do you want to say to them?
2: Get your own help. Outside of the afflicted one. That could be the best thing you could do to support their recovery. When they see that they're not alienated, you know, oh, I'm the one that you screwed everything up. You know, they see the separation between the family and the addiction. So yeah, get your own help, you know, counseling, Al Anon, Smart Recovery, or wherever it's at
1: right on and then of course the other big question is dustin where can people find you in your services if someone's listening to this and says man that sounds good for my family how do they find you
2: so i have a website it's t-h-e-a-b-c-s recovery service.com and then you can also call me on 244 three six one two four four five four one one and find me on Facebook. Uh, I hired a social media marketer. So you guys know, see ads popping up on Facebook. And, you know, a lot of times you can call the local AA or, or even Alan on hotline and get a hold of either myself or a colleague. or There's plenty out there that need help. So I don't think I'm the only one's going to capture them. But I feel a pretty cool little niche where. Some of my competitors don't like it, but it is what it is. Um, The money is not what my motivation is. Once money becomes my motivator, then I don't believe God's in it at all. So I found a job that I would do for nothing. And I absolutely love it. And God's blessed me with the rest of it. So call me for anything. I'm always willing to help point you in the right direction.
1: That is really cool. Well, Dustin, it has been wonderful talking with you, catching up a little bit and hearing how well your business is doing. And now I wish you all the best in that because you're out there. Well, like you said, you're doing your higher powers work. Yes, sir. Thanks for being on the show. And I hope we'll talk soon.
2: All right. Thank you.
0: And that's the interview.
1: Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction and the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer on the show or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter.
0: Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.